Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. We are in week four of a sermon series entitled, Let Me Explain. It's an apologetics series, hoping that that we might better equip ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, growing in an understanding of the why behind our what. And all of us, I think, would agree that it is important we be able to well articulate and rightly, biblically defend the why we believe, the what we believe. And so we started our sermon series off with, let me explain why I believe the Bible. And we talked about the Bible being inspired, that it is reliable, authoritative, and transformational. And and so we believe in the Bible. And then from that position, let me explain why I believe Jesus is the only way. And of all of the competing Uh, uh, deities that are out there vying for our affection and attention and hope. Uh, We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way for someone to be saved. And last week, why I believe in God's design for family and that family is God's starting point for all of human flourishing. And we want the family to succeed because the family was God's idea. And as we've been thinking about this, um, it, it has caused us to stop and reflect in particular in relationship to this week on our subject of abortion, which we will study uh, today. Now, before we get into the subject itself, um, we, we all know the value of a, of a good round of applause or a, a good and right uh, celebration because the moment just deserves it. And, and there are a number of moments and a number of reasons why it would be uh, appropriate uh, for us to celebrate something or for us uh, to applaud. And in fact, right now we're in the middle of the NBA playoffs. I don't know if we have any sports fans in the room, but um, last week uh, there was an incredible thing that happened for the first time in NBA history. Uh, the Toronto Raptors beat the Philadelphia 76ers in game seven of their uh, semi uh, conference finals uh, to advance uh, in the playoffs, and they did so with last minute heroics. First time in NBA history. Let me show you the clip. It's off to Leonard. Defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? So Kawhi Leonard hits the game winner. It was this powerful moment. You see that the crowd celebrated interruption. The team celebrated interruption. There was one guy in the back there. He was just holding out his hands like slap fives. I don't know what he was doing, but it was a moment of celebration uh, to be sure. And it was appropriate because it was, it was the win. Well, if you're not a sports fan, maybe you'll recognize this. And there's a particular film, one of my favorite of all time, uh, called Braveheart with Mel Gibson. And uh, All God's Men Said. All right, and so Braveheart is an epic film, and there's this incredible moment where Mel Gibson gives this speech uh, to rally the troops that have drawn together in anticipation of a coming war. And let me just remind you of what he does. That they may take our lives, 
but they'll never take our freedom! I mean, I want to run through a brick wall right now. I mean, that just fires you up, right? I'm ready to get in a three-point stance and somebody say hut. I mean, it, it is just awesome. But there are also moments that we've recently seen celebrated that, you know, if we're being completely honest, it just seems to run in, in total opposition as to a cause or as something that is actually worthy of human applause. Let me show you this clip. If you're not familiar, that is someone's iPhone video of the New York State Legislature, the moment that they passed this last year, the strongest pro-choice legislation in the country, allowing a woman to abort a baby up to delivery. And that was celebrated. It was applauded. It's a standing ovation. It just feels like there's this strange dichotomy. Kawhi Leonard hits a game-winning jump shot. Okay, let's celebrate. The team has won. Mel Gibson gives this epic speech. Let's celebrate. Let's cheer because we're running after a, a noble cause. But a woman being given permission legally to abort a child up until its birth just doesn't seem to register as a reason that is worthy of a standing ovation in the celebration that you just saw. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet spoke and he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He spoke thousands of years ago about a day which would be coming whereby the culture would get so twisted that it would celebrate evil as something that was actually good. Family, let me tell you, that day is here. We are living in that world right now. But this morning, I want us to see that the scriptures are crystal clear. All human life begins at conception. And it has intrinsic value and dignity and worth as an image bearer of the God who has given it. And yet, this is not how all people view human life. Let me share with you some statistics about abortion in our country and in our world today. Did you know in the United States that one in four women will have an abortion by the age of 45? In 2014, more than 926,000 abortions were performed. That is down 12% from the 1.1 million in 2011. Why are abortions down in our country from 1.1 million to 926,000? Well, because Technology and medicine are advancing at a rapid rate, and we are able to detect life earlier than ever before, and it is causing the ladies that are given the option to choose to choose life in response to that. Uh, 54% of women having abortions reported as being Protestant or Catholic in their religious affiliation. Planned Parenthood has performed over 130,000 abortions this year alone. They've performed more than 8.4 million since 1970. And since the passing of Roe versus Wade, American, Americans have aborted 
more than 61.3 million babies in response. Globally, the statistics are even worse. Between 2010 and 2014, an estimated 56 million abortions were performed. In developed regions from 1994 to 2014, in that 10-year span, the abortion rate declined markedly from 46 to 27 per 1,000 women in countries that were developed, whereas it remained flat in regions that were still developing. Again, with the advancement of technology and medicine, the response of people choosing to abort a child that they can detect as having life is in rapid decline. Approximately 2,900 abortions will have taken place globally by the time I get to the end of this morning's sermon. And did you know that since 1980, there have been 1.5 billion abortions performed in our world? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And so this morning, let me explain why I believe that abortion is a political issue. Let me explain why I believe that abortion is a political issue. Now, immediately, some of you bristle at this and you think, no, it's a theological issue. Others, perhaps from a more uh, progressive or liberal leaning, you're going to say yes and amen. That's why the church needs to stay out of it and stop trying to legislate morality. And we'll talk about that here in a few moments. But let me explain why we would contend that abortion is, in fact, political and what we mean When we say that, a political structure refers to the way in which a government is run. A government or a nation's governance is its driving political structure. It is the way the nation operates or the values that drive the way in which a a government governs its society, its people, and its culture at large. Another way of explaining this would be to talk about it in terms of a kingdom. We as American citizens, we live in the kingdom of America. This kingdom has a governmental authority that is driven by a democratic political structure determined by the values of the citizens that make it up. So the laws and the freedoms within our kingdom are driven by the ethics and the values of our governing authorities that we have democratically elected and put into place. Our kingdom, called the United States of America, operates politically according to the values that you and I hold to culturally. This then creates the dilemma for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's why. We are part of a greater kingdom. And we belong to a greater king. So I want to show you how the Bible is going to contend for this to be true. Grab your copy of God's word and go with me to Mark chapter 1. And we'll start reading in verse 14. Mark uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, you can look on with your neighbor, or we always put a copy of the Scriptures on the screen uh, behind me. Mark chapter 1, we'll start reading uh, together in verse number uh, 14. I'll give you just a moment uh, to turn there. Mark chapter 14, starting in, uh, Mark chapter 1, starting in verse number 14. If you're there, say, I got it. Here we go. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So listen, Jesus shows up on the scene, right? He enters into Galilee, and he preaches his first sermon. You know what it is? 
The kingdom of God is here. Everything is changed. The rule and reign of God in people and over people throughout creation has shown up. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then you ask the question, okay, well, how does one enter into this new coming kingdom of God that is being ushered in through the person of Jesus Christ? Well, he answers that. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel and you become a citizen of the kingdom that is at hand. And then Colossians chapter 1 tells us what happens when you become a citizen of this kingdom. It says, he has delivered us from the domain, that's a kingdom, of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, that is the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus Christ showed up, he came proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you and I uh, repent of our sin and believe in the gospel to save us from it, then we become citizens of that kingdom that Jesus ushers in. We are no longer citizens in the domain of darkness, but we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. We are part now of a different political structure. We are now to represent the values and the ethics and the behavior of the kingdom of God in every area of our life. If you just think about how uh, government works, when, when, when governments of, of foreign nations want to engage with one another, whether that is in policy or procedure or, or, or what, whatever that happens to be, or trade, they have an, an, an ambassador or they have some type of official that serves to represent the president or the king of their country where they come from. And they engage with a representative from another country, and that's how deals are struck, that's how relationships are forged. And, and that ambassador's task is to carry the message of the king for the kingdom for which he rules. Well, listen, brothers and sisters, if we, if we belong to the kingdom of God, then we've been entrusted with a message that comes from our king, representing the kingdom and the citizenship now that we hold. And so, while we live in one kingdom, we represent another kingdom because we've been entrusted with the message of the greater king. And so listen, that's why we say when it comes to the subject of abortion, it is in fact a political issue. But it's not a political issue in that it's one that belongs to the Democrats or it's one that belongs to the Republicans. This is a political issue because it's one that belongs to the kingdom of God. And so as men and women, as citizens in God's kingdom, then this is a political issue for us. We, are, we as believers are to view this issue not through the lens of culture, but through the lens of the kingdom. Tony Evans is a pastor in Dallas, Texas, and he has written extensively on the kingdom of God. And this is what he says. The kingdom agenda is the visible demonstration of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of our life. And so this means that God's agenda for his kingdom is to reorient every area of our life so that the invisible kingdom can be visible through us. We are God's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We represent our king, and so we must engage as a kingdom ethic on the subject of abortion and the value of human life. So this morning, we're going to do that by asking and answering two questions. 
The first question we're going to ask and answer is, what does God's word say about the value of human life? And the second question is, and what does it reveal about when that life begins? So let's take them one at a time. If you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down because I'm going to give you the conviction that we hold, and then we're going to biblically discover why it is that we hold to it. The first question is, what does God's word reveal about the value of human life? And here's the conviction that we hold. Every human bears the image of God, has intrinsic value and worth, and is therefore deserving of equal dignity, respect, and care. I'll give you a moment in case you want to write that down. Every human bears the image of God, has intrinsic value and worth, and is therefore deserving of equal dignity, respect, and care. And so let me show you why. Go with me in your scripture, your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1, and we will see what God says about that. Genesis um, chapter 1. We'll start reading uh, at the end of the creation account, starting in verse 26. Uh, God is uh, culminating his creation uh, with giving life uh, to men. And so in Genesis chapter 1, 1 verse 26, God is going to speak about how this has taken place. Genesis 1 26, if you're there, say I'm there. Seven of you will read along, that's good. <laughs> then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God spoke and he said, let us make man after our image and after our likeness. And then the scriptures go on and they tell us how God was to do that and the dominion that he has entrusted for man to hold. But look now what he says in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is what theologians tell us is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. That because God has made man after his image and his likeness, then we carry an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth because we are God's image bearers. All people, everywhere, have an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth because they bear the image of God. Listen, God's desire to uniquely create something like himself, a creature to display the likeness of his glory in creation was to create humanity, you and me. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? In the Hebrew language, those two words are almost synonymous. They can mean a similar uh, or a reflection of. Another way to understand it is the idea of representing uh, another. We, were, we are not God, but we were created by God to represent God in the creation that we've been called to steward and enjoy. So I was talking with a friend uh, in between um, um, uh, service hours, and uh, we were talking about going fishing in the next several days. And I don't know when the last time is that you were standing over a body of water, but um, you know, the sun will reflect off the, the water, and so you'll get to see it's very bright. You need to wear sunglasses and, and because the sun's reflection is powerful. But when you're staring at the water and seeing the reflection of the sun, you're not seeing the sun itself. Even though you feel its warmth and you understand the magnitude of its glow, that's not the sun. It's the reflection of it. 
So listen, all people have been called by God to reflect his glory in his creation. We are not God, but we reflect God created in his image and likeness. And therefore, unlike anything else in the entirety of creation, our uniqueness carries with it an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. And if you just think about the grandeur of the universe, like uh, scientists tell us that the universe is um, unknowable. In fact, the latest data says that the known universe can only be visibly recognized for what they estimate to be 4% of its totality. So 4% of the known universe is in some way visible. Okay, but 22% of the universe they recognize has something out there, but they're only calling it dark matter. Like they, they don't know the specifics of what is out there, but they know that something is out there. So 22% is just referred to as dark matter. 74% is known as dark energy. It's, it's something that's so vague, so unknown, so distant, yet recognized that the only thing their marketing campaign could come up with was dark energy. And yet throughout the expanse of the universe, with an unknown and innumerable number of planets and systems and solar systems and stars and galaxies that would make the earth look like a ping pong ball compared to a beach ball. Humanity, you and I, are the only thing in all of it that bears the image of God. You recognize that? We're unique and distinct and separate, and therefore we have an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth that nothing else in creation does. No planets, no plants, no stars, no animals. Humanity created distinctly and uniquely by God is different because we alone bear his image. And so I'll share it with you like this. Uh, when our thirdborn, Libby, uh, came. Uh, very quickly, the doctors told us that she had a congenital heart defect. And so we started seeing a pediatric cardiologist very quickly. And they would do echocardiograms and all these tests and, uh, and, and just all the time. Every, in fact, every week we were going to see the doctor and, uh, and so they could test her heart and show us what was wrong. During that, and so by the way, Mary and I were reeling, okay, because we had two kids that were older than that and they were perfectly healthy and the only time we went to the pediatrician was when they were sick. And then Libby shows up and this just shoots our wheels off and so we're reeling from all of this information. And during that season between when the, the, the heart defect was diagnosed and her surgery... Uh, uh, was scheduled to, to repair that. Uh, our dog, uh, Macy, and I say ours because I married it, was a terrible creature. <laughs> our dog, Macy, uh, was not acting right. We took her to the vet, and the, the veterinarian walked in, and he's like, hey, uh, hey Mr. Bales, I, I don't, I'm sorry to tell you, but uh, Macy has a heart murmur. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of options. I mean, obviously, we can investigate a surgical response or, you know, there's some uh, medicinal intervention that we might be able to, to try. And I'm like, I mean, because, again, I'm in the pediatric cardiologist's office every week. So I'm like, well, listen, doc, I don't mean to be insensitive, but if I run around the block a few times, can that speed things up? <laughs> now, I, don't send me an email. Okay, do email me. It's Todd at 
nbbctx.org. Here's the deal, all right? I love animals. I love dogs. But everybody understands it's not the same as my daughter. Why? Because no dog bears the image and likeness of God. But my daughter does. And so the, the, the value, the love, the affection that we have for everything else in creation is good and is right. And yes, it comes from God, except cats. But, they, it com- <laughs> but not like humanity does. Right? Not like, not like humanity was. By the way, if you're asking me if dogs go to heaven, I don't know. But I promise you, if they do, Macy ain't there. This is the position that all humanity has. Distinct and unique with an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. Why? Because all humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. And so, listen, this this value is not based on what we do. It's not something that we can earn. It's not because of what we make or where where we're from or what we look like. It's because of whose image that we bear. In his book, Unparalleled, author Jared C. Wilson writes this, speaking of the human dignity and worth and the Imago Dei. The biblical grounds for the sacredness of human life have nothing to do with a person's usefulness to a family or society. The Bible calls us to the pro-life position on the reality that all persons are made in the image of God, that God has created us equal, and that therefore all life is precious whether a person cures cancer or gets cancer. Wins an Olympic medal or a Special Olympics medal, can compose like Mozart or sing like Roseanne Barr. Which is why I would want you to know this morning, our church values the special needs ministry that we hold to in our preschool and children's. Because we want to minister to everyone that God has entrusted to our care, regardless of whether or not they are equal because all life has been created in the image and likeness of God. And so, yes, I am a dad of two daughters who happen to occupy that space, but as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is my biblical conviction as to the reason why our church endorses it. Because all life has dignity. So, listen, here, I hope it is an encouragement to you, regardless of whether or not you, a friend or family member, will ever be ministered to by our special needs ministry. Because, listen, the return on investment is limited if you simply measure it mathematically. The number of dollars it takes to build out a space that is appropriate, the number of resources that are required to staff it and to uh, put volunteers that are adequately equipped and trained to minister in it, Listen, mathematically, it doesn't make sense, but we belong to a different kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And so I'll tell you this, you like numbers? Did you know 83% of families that have a child with special needs get divorced? How about this? We talk about all the unreached people groups around the world. 95% of families that have a child or a family member with a disability or special need are unchurched. We have an entire unreached people group in our backyard. And because we belong to a different kingdom, then we're called to go and to reach them with the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why. Because all life carries intrinsic value, dignity, and worth. This is why we say every human bears the image of God, has intrinsic worth and value, and is therefore deserving of equal dignity, respect, and care. Which leads me to ask and answer our second question. 
What does God's word reveal about when human life begins? What does God's word reveal about when human life begins? Here's our conviction statement, and then biblically we'll argue as to why. All human life starts in the womb from the moment of its conception. Our conviction is that all human life starts in the womb from the moment of its conception. Go with me now to the Old Testament book of Psalms. Psalm 139, we'll look at several texts, but this is where we'll begin. Psalm 139, Old Testament, middle of your Bible. And I want to show you what God's word has to say on this particular issue at hand. Psalm 139, and we'll start reading together in verse 13. I'll give you a minute to get there. Here's what the psalmist says. If you're there, say, I got it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Listen, the scriptures are crystal clear that God is intimately involved in our development. Where? In the womb. In utero is when God is intimately, intricately involved in humanity's creation. Think about the very phrase that's used here in the Hebrew, knitted me together. This is an interesting term. It speaks about God's being intentional, his being hands-on, and his being future-focused in his design for every person created in the womb. And listen... God's not just familiar with the baby, but he's intimately acquainted with every aspect of the development of the child. From the unformed substance to his or her birth, God is intimately acquainted with every person where? In the womb, in utero. Which is why Jeremiah would speak about this. In Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, he says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were even born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. What does Jeremiah say? That God spoke and said, I knew you before you were formed, and I'm the one who formed you. In the womb. The oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, talks about this even from its very beginning. In Job chapter 31, verse 15, the Bible says, Did he... Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Just think about the miraculous interaction that takes place between Jesus' mother Mary and John the Baptist's mother Elizabeth. Some of you ladies may be able to relate to this. So when you find out you're pregnant, there's this excitement and you just can't wait to tell someone the good news. This was before Instagram, so they had to like run over to people's house, okay? So... Uh, Mary is, is pregnant, and Elizabeth, her cousin, is also pregnant. And so Mary shows up, and she's like, you're not going to believe it. I'm pregnant. It's kind of weird how it happened, but... Now, here's what the Bible tells us. That the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy upon hearing the news. Now, how many moms have ever carried a child 
and felt that movement in your, in your like when the baby looks like a, like a whale is moving? I mean, I don't know. It's weird. That's what the Bible describes. So here's what's crazy. This is what the Bible is describing, and this is before 3D sonograms. What the psalmist said in Psalm 139 is, is what science is just now catching up to. What Jeremiah described in Jeremiah chapter 1 is what the sonographer is just now trying to find the words to explain. What Job says in Job 31 is what the doctor walks in and shows you a picture and points to things and explains it away. The Bible has always known because God has always created life in the womb. Science is just now catching up. This is why pro-life advocate Sarah Terzo speaks about the scientific advancement and its argument for the pro-life cause when she writes and says, science teaches without reservation that life begins at conception. It is a scientific fact that an organism exists after conception that did not exist before conception. This organism has its own DNA distinct from the mother and the father meaning that it is neither part of the mother nor part of the father. As the embryo grows, it develops a heartbeat 22 days after conception. Its own circulatory system and its own organs from conception. It is a new organism that is alive and will continue to grow and develop as long as nutrition is provided and its life is not ended through violence or illness. But listen, even pro-choice advocates no longer stand on the ground as to when life begins. Science is taken that argument away. Uh, Pro-choice advocate Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote an article in January of 2013, and it's entitled, So What If Abortion Ends Life? And I quote, yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Christian apologetics author Gregory Kokel spoke about the fundamental issue at the center of the abortion debate, and he writes, abortion involves killing and discarding something that's alive. Whether it's right or not to take the life of any living being depends entirely upon the answer to one question, what kind of being is it? The answer one gives is pivotal, the deciding element that trumps all other considerations. Let me put the issue plainly. If the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. You see, here's the deal. In culture today, if you just pay attention to your Twitter and Instagram feed or just watch the news for a few minutes, you'll discover the debate is no longer about when life begins. Science has answered that. The Bible is always known. The Bible has always taught. Science is now catching up. The issue at the center of the abortion debate is a woman's right to choose. So let's talk about that. This idea of pro-choice or a mother's right to choose is predicated on a conviction that a mother's life is more valuable than that of her child. Look up here at me. That's an Imago Dei issue. That's an issue regarding the image and likeness of God that has been given to that baby equally as much as it has been given to the mom. So, what are the reasons why 
women have abortions today. Listen, surveys tell us the top five reasons why abortions are carried out today are, number one, inadequate finances, 21%. Number two, not ready for the responsibility, 21%. Number three, a woman's life would be changed, 16%. Number four, relationship problems are not being married, 12%. Number five, being too young or too immature, 11%. Listen, I'm not diminishing any woman who finds herself with an unexpected pregnancy. Those are all legitimate considerations as to, as to the, the thinking surrounding the decision that has to be made. But I would argue this. If these reasons justify putting a preborn child to death, then how could they not also justify the mother of a three-year-old doing the same if for any reason she finds that for those reasons she can no longer be a mother? Now, some would immediately protest and say, yes, but what about the fact that the baby is completely dependent upon the mother for survival? Well, have you been in the church nursery? That doesn't change outside the womb. Those children are also entirely dependent upon a parent for their survival. Okay, what about a child that has cancer? Do we mutilate them and throw them away? If life begins at conception, then it changes everything for you and me. It's no more a mother's right to terminate a child in the womb than it is to terminate that child's life outside of it. If we protect the lives of children outside of the womb because of human rights, then we must use that same rationale to protect the child that is in the womb as well. This is why the whole nonsense of legislating morality is ridiculous. Listen, all of our laws are rooted in morality. Are you allowed to murder? Is that legal? Well, I, I read somewhere, thou shalt not kill. Are you allowed to steal? Or you get arrested when you are convicted of stealing? Well, I read somewhere, thou shalt not steal. Are you allowed to perjure yourself in court or lie to an authority or figure? Well, I've read somewhere. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Listen, the idea of legislating morality as being wrong is nonsense. All of our legislation finds some of its origin in morality. Now, what about that morality? We can talk. But whether or not it's rooted in morality, yes and amen to that. And any argument to the contrary is nonsense. And so, it demands the question, how are we as Christians to respond? Listen, if culture is going to contend, and the statistics proved it to be true. In fact, the last video just said we're celebrating all that's wrong and evil. If culture is going to contend that children are an inconvenience, they're a burden, but you and I acknowledge that we belong to a different kingdom, not one of Republican or Democratic origin, but rather citizens of the kingdom of God then what is our calling to respond? How are you and I to engage? Well, listen, how does God view kids? You remember last weekend, Mother's Day weekend, we had the opportunity on both campuses to dedicate families. It was awesome. And uh, I don't know about Pastor Todd, but when I had this conversation with these parents that were choosing to dedicate themselves to the Lord, the first thing um, that I reminded them of was what God's Word says in Psalm 127, that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like, the arrow, like, the, uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, the children of one's youth. 
Blessed is the man who finds his quiver full of them. How does God see kids? As a blessing, not a burden. So if we belong to his kingdom, how do we see them? In the same exact way. Okay, but what about Jesus? Like in the first century, when Jesus showed up and began his earthly ministry, do you understand that obviously because of their lack of ability to contribute uh, to an agrarian society, that children were going to be devalued in many respects in the first century day that Christ lived. And so when some kids showed up, and I don't, I don't, the scriptures don't tell us exactly what it looked like, but in my mind's eye, Jesus is holding court. He's teaching. He's got a large crowd gathered around him. Maybe even some Pharisees or some scribes have made their way in. Jesus is having hard conversations, looking them in the eye. It's got to be a powerful moment, right? It's not a moment for kids, at least according to culture. Because what can they add? How do they contribute to the conversation at hand? But then I'm imagining that all these folks are gathered around Christ and some of the little ones just begin to make their way through. Like every parent in the room has had a kid that slid between your legs. You're like, oh my. So I'm imagining kids are squeezing through, running underneath legs. A couple of them are holding fast to mom's legs because they're nervous about the size of the crowd that's around. The disciples immediately, with a cultural response, get annoyed. But not Jesus. Listen to what it says. Then children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. How does God see kids? As a blessing. How did Jesus see kids? Bring them to me. Why? Because they bear the image of and likeness of God, and therefore they have an intrinsic value, dignity, and worth that deems them different from anything else in all creation. This is how God sees us, all of us, preborn to the moment before Jesus calls us home. All life has dignity and value because it is given by God and bears his image unlike anything else in all creation. So, how are you and I supposed to respond? As the church of Jesus Christ, we're not just called to sit back and watch. We've got to engage our culture. So I want to give you five thoughts for you to have that might shape the way you and I would engage, especially with our friends and family that hold to a different conviction from our own. Let me encourage you to write this down. The first is, as the church, we must engage and represent the kingdom on this issue. Again, I don't I don't care how you vote. This is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. This is an issue that matters to the kingdom of God. So we have to represent God's kingdom on this issue. We don't get to represent what is comfortable, what is easy or convenient. We stand on the conviction of our king. So we represent his kingdom in a culture, listen, that's going to differ greatly from his. So I, I want to be honest with you. This is going to cost us. If you just, just check your Twitter feed, man. This is, this is so hotly debated. There are such vile ways in which this conversation is being had. But our calling is to engage. How, did, how do we do this? Okay, well, if you just remember John chapter... 1 verse 14, the Bible says, uh, 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen uh, his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. And then it says, comma, full of grace and truth. So when Jesus has this crowd around, right? And the little ones are coming. He's engaging with grace and truth. So if asked, okay, Jesus, why are you, why are you being tender toward these kids? He's going to hold to a kingdom conviction because they bear the image and likeness of my father. But did you notice he does so with grace? So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Let us be a people who are more about hand-holding than finger-wagging. We've got to engage our culture that holds to conviction that is different from our own with grace and truth as Jesus did. Number two, we need to love unwed expectant mothers and provide alternative options for them. We've got to love unwed expectant mothers and provide alternative options for them. This is why we value crisis pregnancy centers. We value ministries that are going to give uh, uh, ladies that are expecting and I hadn't planned on it, an alternative to abortion for that baby. And rather than just yelling at them or condemning them with our thoughts or our looks or our words, we got to love on them, put our arms around them, pay for them. If we really value life, this is what we've got to be a people that are about. I'll tell you where I saw this in the most redemptive way possible. Last Sunday uh, was family dedication. It's awesome. One of my favorite days of the year. And uh, a couple of years ago, there was a young lady in our church on this campus that found herself with an unplanned pregnancy. And uh, there was a family on our in our church on our Gilmer campus that was begging God to grow their family and they were unable to have biological children on their own. A connection was made between these two. This unwed mother and this couple that desired for God to give them another child. And so a connection was made. And this woman did the most courageous thing possible. She carried that baby to term and gave that baby to this loving family. And did you know last Sunday on our Gilmer campus, while that family stood before our church and our God, and they dedicated themselves to the Lord, that mother who carried that child to term was sitting on the front row cheering them on as loudly as possible. Right? That's God's redemption. That's the power of God's redemption. Not easy, but right. And God has moved in such a miraculous way in response to that. One of the most encouraging moments in my ministry life was that. Number three, we've got to adopt and foster kids. Some of my very best friends in the world have been called to adopt a baby. One of the greatest joys that Mary and I have is to walk alongside of them as they fill out their paperwork, as we get to endorse them as our family and friends. And we get to wait on the Lord Jesus to bring them the perfect child that he has already picked out in the country from where this baby is coming. And I can't wait. I can't wait to meet that baby and I can't wait to celebrate with this family and God has given them this burden to adopt. And so some of you right now in the room, elbow your spouse because you've been praying about it, wrestling over it. But James tells us that pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for the widows and the orphans, amen? Did you know that the church of Jesus Christ could end 
the adoption and foster care crisis in our country if we would simply roll up our sleeves and engage? And so right now, if you are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, let our church come alongside you. We have a number of families that have fostered and adopted kids. And if God is calling you to do that, then let us walk alongside you, pair you with those families, and encourage you every single step of that way. This is the ministry of God, and it gives all of these unwed, unplanned pregnancies an alternative to aborting their baby instead. Some of you, you're in a different stage of life. Maybe you've got an empty nest, but I would also argue you've got more wisdom and resources than ever before. You think God could be calling you to foster? To foster kids to provide a temporary place for a child to be loved on and well cared for? This must be the way in which the church of Jesus Christ engages. We have a number of families in our church, a number of families that are fostering kids even now. If God's calling you to do that, let us know. We'll pair you with those families, walk you through what that process happens to be. But we got to engage. Number four, we've got to express love and give care to women who have had abortions. I said this a moment ago. I'm going to say it again. Enough of the finger wagging. Let's be about the hand holding. So we are going to love and give care to women who have had abortions. Listen, ladies, if this is you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that has happened. I'm sorry that you've had to endure I doubt you have any relief from the decision that you made, but I promise you this, there is nothing you have done. There is nothing you could do that would outsend the grace of our great God and King. Nothing. There is grace for you. Absolutely grace for you. And let me add a tag on this. And for those of you that pressured or paid for that abortion, you're carrying a wound around as well. So dad, if you pressured your daughter to do this, or boyfriend, if you pressured your girl to have that done, There's grace for you. We want to walk alongside of you, but we got to drag that which is in the dark into the light so that our great God can rescue and redeem that which is broken. And so if you're here in the room this morning and you don't know where to begin, let me just encourage you, okay? If you will email Pastor Todd and I confidentially, and here's how. Send us an email to care at nbbctx.org. And it comes to Todd and I confidentially. We will meet with you and walk with you and encourage you and partner with you and get counseling for you so that we can see God rescue and redeem you. This comes to us. It's confidential. So if you're here today and you're hurting and this is a, something in your past, then just write that down and shoot us an email and let us minister to you right where you are because listen, that's where God shows up. And number five, we got to be a church and a people that pray for brokenness and repentance. You probably remember the story of Christ entering into Jerusalem, the holy city of God, you remember? And when Jesus shows up, this is supposed to be a sanctified city with a people that are set apart. It's supposed to look a certain way because God has created it with a uniqueness in its purpose. And when Jesus sees the condition of Jerusalem, he doesn't celebrate, he weeps. He sobs, he cries, he laments over the condition of the people of God. And so should we. We got to pray for a brokenness to invade our culture and start with us and repent of the ways in which we have stood by silent for too long. 
were applauding that they're killing a kid up until the day before he or she is born. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We got to repent of this. We got to own it. Let's be broken over that which breaks God. This is the calling for us. And so, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, here's what we're going to do. I asked the worship team this week if they would sing a song of response called Healer. I don't know if you've ever heard it. One of our favorites. Because I just believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope to rescue and redeem that which sin has broken and destroyed. The commonality of abortion that permeates the culture the devastating effects for those who have endured that season of suffering themselves, the shame from the men who have paid and pressured others to do this terrible thing. But listen, I believe that Jesus is the healer who can rescue and redeem all that sin has lost and destroyed. And so I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, our staff is here at the front. Our spouses are standing at our side, and we would love to pray with you. We would love to pray for you. If you just want to get at the altar or take a knee where you are and pray for brokenness and repentance and for God to move in our people, in our hearts, and through our nation and around our world, we're going to stand before God and give an account for this. 1.5 billion babies aborted since 1980 around our world. Let's ask Jesus to do that which only he can do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for loving us, God. I pray that your spirit would come and invade this place, God, that you would minister and move in a way that could not be explained except that it belongs to you. Lord, we thank you for loving us. We are unlovable. We recognize that, but you have never given up on us. You meet us right where we are. So God, have your way with us as your people. We ask this in faith, in Jesus' good name. Amen.